When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Welcome to the Mogul Marathon Real Estate Podcast. We highlight keen investment insights and strategies so you can become a real estate mogul. Here's your host, Yannick Kujo Virgil. All right, guys, welcome back to the Mogul Marathon Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Yannick Cujo Virgil, and I'm super excited for our guest today. Our guest is Brian Briscoe. Now, Brian is a full time apartment syndicator and has ownership interests in about over $50 million in commercial real estate assets. And he's also the director of multifamily educational community, the Tribe of Titans, and also the host of Diary of an apartment investor podcast. He recently retired from the U.S. Marines after 20 years of service. So thank you, Brian, for your service and really excited to have you on the show. Thanks, Yannick. Appreciate you having me. It's it's, uh, been been too long. (laughs) Absolutely. So I I really want to dive into your, your background because 20 years of service in the Marines and just transitioning into the real estate space, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of, you know, um, stories and just learning more about your journey. Can you give the listeners a quick insight on your story and how you were able to get to where you are today? Yeah. So speaking of military, I think when I was younger, you know, military was like the furthest thing from my mind. You know, I, I kind of had the, and this is absolutely wrong mentality, but I kind of had the mentality that military was for the kids that, you know, couldn't get into college or whatever. That's just, just how I grew up. And I remember, you know, going to college and everything, got a, got, you know, two degrees and, you know, bachelor's and master's in math. And I wanted to be a math professor and, you know, September 11th really changed something in me, you know? So, you know, on September 12th, I was talking to a Marine Corps recruiter is essentially how, how that panned out. And so I was, I was very adamant with my recruiter that, Hey, I want to get back to school. I want to go back to grad school. So what's the shortest contract I can sign, you know, and they, they got me in on a three and a half year contract. And so I, I got a letter from the grad school, everything else and um, went active duty. And it, it turned out that there was, there was enough there, you know, there was, you know, purpose, there was a sense of service, there was everything that turns out I, I stayed in for 20 years, you know, which, like I said, I never planned. And, you know, looking, looking back, I think 2004 time frame, I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, you know, somebody, somebody at work had mentioned it, you know, and great book. Yeah. I mean, I, when I first read it, I don't even think I understood a quarter, you know, all I understood reading that book was buy assets, buy assets, buy assets. The rest probably went way over my head, but, you know, I picked up the cash flow quadrant, read that book too. And I'm like, man, I got to figure out how to buy assets. And I remember thinking, that you know, multifamily apartments were were way too complicated because he talks a lot about syndication. He talks a lot about apartments in those books, and I remember thinking, man, that's way too complicated for me. But I bet you I can figure out single family, right? And that's that's kind of what was going through my mind at the time. And so I got onto BarnesandNoble.com. I, I I picked wrong, you know. I was the Barnes and Noble guy, and not the Amazon guy, but. Uh, um, bought a bunch of books on you know single family rentals and whatnot, and decided to jump in. So I used my my VA loan to buy my first rental property. You know, bought it as an owner occupied house, and then put renters in it. You know, used my FHA loan again. That's one of the nice things about the military. If you're moving every you know twelve to thirty six months, um, you you get the option to refresh your FHA and VA loans a lot. But uh, um, so yeah, I started trying to buy single families every time I moved, which had I had I 
gone back and done things over again, I would have bought as many as I could have figured out how to buy at the time. But I would say probably 2016, 2017 was like the the next turning point that I had where I I knew my military career was eventually going to end. You know, I was kind of looking at, you know, the, the light at the end of the tunnel and for the first time seeing it and thinking, you know, what do I want to do afterwards? What do I want to keep on doing? And what's what kept on coming back to my mind was real estate, real estate, real estate, because, you know, it fascinated me. It's it's something that I can talk about all day long and I enjoy it. And it was I, I had proof of concept from the single family home. So started looking at different ways to get in to scale. At first, I was looking at scaling a single family business and caught wind of multifamily, started listening to podcasts, got into some educational programs, some networking groups. And um, as you know, I was I was very active in the DC, you know, RIA network because we, we saw each other at a lot of those different events, but eventually found a couple of partners and I'm glossing over a lot. And I'm sure you're going to, you know, ask me to, you know, expound on certain things, but eventually found some partners and then got first deal under contract, closed it. And that was, that was really a catalyst. I think when you're trying to get into you know, multifamily, that first deal is is huge. It's it's the key. And without that, a lot of the brokers aren't going to pay attention. So it takes a ton of work to get your first deal and it's a lot less work to get your second deal. You know, so yeah, long story short, you know, general partner on 655 units. And depending on which way the wind's blowing today, it's worth about $50 million. And just started a real estate fund, which I'm excited about. And, you know, from here on out, just excited about the future, excited to bring more real estate into the portfolio. That's good stuff. And there's a lot to unpack there. So so take me back to your military days and also, you know, you working and just getting that thought about getting into real estate. You know, for me, it was I wanted to create my own lifestyle, right? I wanted to take control of my life. Did you feel like, you know, the military, and I can only imagine that the time commitment that's required to be in the military, is that some of the the same thought patterns that you had in your journey to real estate? Absolutely. I mean, I, I moved 10 times in 20 years and I never got to choose the location, right? It was go here or get out, you know? And it's like, okay, we can either move across the country or be unemployed. You know, it's like, hey, good deploy or get out, you know, okay, I can go to Iraq or be unemployed type stuff. So, you know, those were the types of decisions I had. But I think really what it was, and I was I was on a deployment, you know, 2016, 2017 timeframe. And I remember just having a really, really low moment, you know, it was I was away from my family and, you know, it wasn't the first time I'd missed dozens of birthdays, you know, dozens of holidays because of, of the military. And I remember just feeling, you know, extremely down and the, I had like this light bulb moment that was like, I need to get out, you know, I need to figure out my exit plan, you know, and I was, I was far enough in that I, I, I knew I was going to go till my 20 year mark to retire. But I just had this moment of clarity where I realized as long as I'm in the military, I'm going to be reliving this moment over and over and over again. You know, so they're going to they're going to tell me to go someplace. I'm going to have to go. And so that was really the catalyst for me was I didn't want to be on a big Navy ship in the Gulf of Aden or, you know, the, the Gulf of Arabia or whatever, you know, waiting for something to happen, you know, being away from my family. And so it was in a way it was it was yes part of it was buying the time freedom but i think a large part of it was trying to avoid that painful moment again and a lot of times you know most most of what i did while i was active duty in in, in commercial real estate was while i was working at the pentagon which is a busy place and you know i would leave my house at you know 6:15 in the morning and i'd get home at 6 p.m. at night so you know, average day was 12 hours away from home. And so when I was looking at, when I was looking at, oh gosh, I'm tired. I don't want to do this. I closed my eyes and I'd ment- mentally put myself back on that ship. And I'd mentally remember, I would just put myself back in that, that state of mind that I was in and I'd just let myself feel the pain again. And then I'd open my eyes and be like, never again. I'm not going to do that again. And 
that's what really kept me going was remembering that one time and just putting myself back in that situation over and over again. The one thing that keeps regurgitating in my mind when I hear you talk about your transition and just having that red pill moment on wanting to take control of your your life was that pain, right? And I think, you know, how I look at things is that people tend to have their biggest motivations when they have two things. It's either pain or pleasure. And so you just being able to channel that pain and turning that energy into something that you can convert to change your life, create your own life by design and create your own destiny is something that I think a lot of people are trying to get to, right? Because it takes a lot of guts to go out there and be an entrepreneur first and foremost. But I would imagine there can't, there was some safety from the military, right? And having that paycheck, right? You know, how did you overcome that as well? Because that's something that's, that's, that's an important to note about the transition into the world of real estate or just entrepreneurship. You know, I, I know myself well, and I, I knew at the time that if I didn't have a solid backup option, I would stay in the Marine Corps. That's part of the reason I went 20 years is because I never really sat down and thought what's next. It was always just, you know, put my head down, work, 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 work. And then, oh my gosh, you know, I've got orders to the next place. Okay. Well, I don't have any other options, so I'm going to do it. So I, knowing that about myself, I, I gave myself three years, you know, right around my 17 year mark. I said, okay, the earliest I can retire is October 31st, 2021. And I wrote that date down everywhere. October 31st, 2021. I actually started a countdown to that date, you know, and I, I kept that countdown every single day. And if, you know, if you would have talked to me two or three years ago, you could have asked me, you know, Hey, what's your countdown at today? And I would have given you the number. And I kept that foremost on my mind. So, so one thing is I, I kept it 100% in front of me. I need to, ha- I need to replace my active duty income by October 31st, 2021. You know, this started in 2018. And I would tell myself that every day, every day on the Metro going to the Pentagon, you know, I I had this little card in my, in my bag that I would pull out and I had these affirmations and it's like, I need to replace my income. So a lot of it was just keeping it for, you know, foremost in my mind. And the other decision that I really made was the decision that I was going to make real estate work. And the way that panned out is I essentially told myself that I'm never going to look for another job. And there, there were probably a half a dozen people in my office that retired while I was working there at the Pentagon. And half of them still work at the Pentagon. They walked out in a uniform one day and two weeks later, walked back in in a business suit. Right. So I, I committed to myself that I would never look for another job. And between those two things, you know, that, that gave me enough motivation, gave me what it took to, to keep on doing the daily activities, you know, and I would, I would remember the pain. I would keep focused on that date, October 31st, you know, 2021. And, you know, if I, if I wasn't, you know, doing something with my family or if I wasn't doing something related to my W2 job, I was pretty much doing something related to real estate. And that was, that's basically what it took. The, the thing about real estate that I love is that the cash flow gives you choices. You had a three year goal, right? And you were able to sit down and say to yourself, I want to replace my income with cash flow or real estate in general, right? And I think that's the beauty of this business is that, um, it's, it's real, right? I quit my job in the asset management space about three months ago, three or four months ago. And that was the same thing that I wanted to do, right? You know, I could have left, you know, a year ago, two years ago, but for me, it was about having that consistent income coming in and real estate was the great vehicle to do that. So that's an amazing story. So, okay. So you were able to, to transition out of the military into real estate, but talk about, you know, how, how difficult or what was it some, you know, some of the challenges, what were some of the challenges that you had, you know, growing a real estate business within a demanding field like the military where you're spending 12 hours between six to six and it's probably a bunch of chaos going on maybe on a daily basis, but growing a, a private equity business is not easy by any means. You know, how were you able to do that? 
by, by carving out time, you know, and it, even at the Pentagon. Now, fortunately, I had a job at the Pentagon where I had a little bit of flexibility, right? So I, I, I started posting on LinkedIn consistently. I, I made it made it my goal to make LinkedIn a place where I build my platform. And, you know, I started looking at some of the LinkedIn, you know, how to make your post work best. And the optimal time to post was between nine o'clock and 10 o'clock Eastern, right? And that was, that's what I learned from a lot of websites. And so, you know, one thing I did is, you know, late at night, right, the last thing I did before going to bed is I had my phone, I would pipe up my LinkedIn post, and I would save it in the LinkedIn app. I'd walk out of my office every day at about 9.30, 9.45, just say, hey, guys, I'm going to go, I'm going to go take a walk, which was common. Um, you know, people would just get up and, hey, I'll, I'll be back in five minutes. I just need to stretch my legs. I'd walk out, grab my phone from the box outside. You couldn't have your phone in the office, but grab my phone from the lockbox go out to the fifth floor by the window and, you know, release that post, you know, send that post out. So a lot of it was just being very deliberate and carving out time. So when I, when I wanted to talk to a broker, I would set up appointments with the broker, kind of like, you know, a lot of people do with Calendly now is, um, you know, call a broker up or I email a broker and say, Hey, can we talk tomorrow at, you know, and give them a specific time. And same thing. I'd just keep track of it. I'd walk out of my office and, like I said, I, I had a fairly flexible job. Walk out of my office, grab my cell phone, go make a call or go shoot off an email or go shoot off a text. But, um, you know, everybody, you know, most jobs, you typically have time for lunch. And most of my lunches were, you know, sitting at a table, you know, at, at the subway in, in the Pentagon with on Wi-Fi, shooting out emails or texts or in the courtyard, sending in the Pentagon courtyard on the phone. And um, the other thing I did is, I was on a train for an hour a day. I bought an iPad, you know, and I, I was doing a lot of stuff from my iPad, you know, underwriting properties from my iPad on the train. From <laughs> How is that possible? You know, some days, some days you're sitting like this doing it, you know, but, uh, you know, um, I, I would, I, I had a couple of hacks. I think everybody who's in the you know Metro system does, you know, you got, you got the times listed on the Metro chart and you're familiar with it, but you know, if, if it's a train that comes every five minutes and you see five, five, three, you always take that train with the three minute gap. Right. So because it's going to have people on it. And so I would occasionally let one train go by because looking at the times, I'm like, OK, there was an eight minute gap between this train and that train. There's a three minute gap for the next one. And that train would typically have fewer people on it. And so I'd go in, I'd be able to actually do a little bit more work. So a lot of little hacks and occasionally it meant, you know, an extra five or 10 minutes in the Metro station. But, you know, typically in the Metro station, I had Wi-Fi and I was able to do what I needed anyway. So I, I leveraged every second that I could. And so, you know, during the commute, during lunch hour, the Pentagon gym has amazing Wi-Fi. And so I'd go to the gym during the day and, there was a table with a desk in the back of the gym. And, you know, after, before, after my workout, I sit down, tap out an email or two and do my workout and do the same thing. So it was just being very deliberate, finding every second that I could to be able to, to dedicate towards real estate. And then, you know, we're given 30 days of, of leave or vacation a year. So, you know, every single day of leave I had was, you know, touring properties, visiting properties, asset management or, or something like that. So, that's really what it was. It was just hundred percent focus. It was, you know, my job, I can't, I have to do my job. So that's not moving my family. I got to take care of my family. So that's not moving everything else, you know, fell, fell off the, fell off the calendar. Yeah. I think it comes down to dedication in this business, right? I like, I can remember myself, you know, within my asset management, you know, gig, you know, I used to steal, <laughs> I definitely steal some time on the clock, you know, ducking off into the conference room to do a Zoom call, going outside to take a phone call. And it kind of became, you know, just kind of created a lot of anxiety for me and, you know, just stress and, and frustration because it's like, ah, I want to respond to this email, but I can't because, you know, I have this assignment to do. But I think, you know, for anyone who has that true entrepreneurial spirit, I think it's just better off for you to just live out what you want to do, right? Because I think that's the only way that you would really be truly happy with what you're doing, right? Or else it's just going to be a bunch of just stress, right? What do you think? What are your thoughts on that? 
You know, there, there's definitely, and I, I don't know if it's cultural or, or what, but there, there was a little bit of anxiety. You know, I, I tried not to bring work inside the Pentagon, but there were a couple of days, like, you know, the week before you close on a property, it's usually extremely busy. You know, in those weeks, it was just like, I was always walking out to check my phone. Did I get a text? Did I miss a call? <laughs> and they're just like, hey, Brian is taking uh, extra, extra long breaks. <laughs> And it was, I I was worried. And now my job in the Pentagon, it was not a crucial job. You know, every once in a while, there would be something really, really important that I was needed for now. And really the biggest thing was, is, okay, if I walk out of the office for 30 minutes, is there going to be one of these, these times where the general needs me, you know? And I mean, it happened, you know, a couple times a month where, you know, somebody would come grab me. Hey, the general has a question about X and you need to, you need to answer it now. Right. But a, a lot of the anxiety was if I step out for more than a couple of minutes, you know, is, is one of that thing going to happen? Or if I, if I, you know, change over and, you know, Marines are really specific with uniforms. We can't wear uniforms outside the Pentagon, but you know, if I change over to my civilian clothes and I walk two blocks to the FedEx to, send in my notarized documents to close on a property. It's, it's going to take me 40 minutes. You know, is that going to be when the general comes, you know, and how would I respond to that? And there was, there was a lot of anxiety in that one. It was just like, okay, well, I'll just tell everybody I'll be back in 40 minutes and hustle, you know? And so, you know, a couple of days before closing, you know, if you were on the South side of the Pentagon, you'd probably see Brian Briscoe running with, you know, a folder full of documents. <laughs> Oh man, it just brings back so much, so many memories of just uh, the same things that I've dealt with, you know, with my transition as well. So uh, we all we all kind of go through the same things. It's just it's funny to to hear you you experience you've experienced the same things in a in a different uh, setting. But walk us through your first deal, right? And I know a little bit about your background and you being able to successfully partner up and you know, find a team which helped you get to, you know, where you are today, right? You scaled from zero to to 50 million. You know, walk us through that first deal and how you were able to leverage partnerships to do your first deal in the multifamily space. Yeah, the, the first deal, we I, I had a, a really hard time getting traction with brokers. And I was, I was frustrated because brokers weren't calling me back. I wasn't getting the deal flow that I thought everyone else was talking about. Oh, I underwrite five deals a week. And I was having a hard time getting brokers just to pay attention to me, you know, take my phone calls, respond to emails or texts or whatever. And so the, the way the first deal came about is, I just put a week on the calendar and went to my boss and said, I'm going to take leave from this day to this day, you know, and he's like, okay. And I started calling every single broker in the state of South Carolina. Cause that's, that's what, that was our target market trying to make appointments. And, you know, after probably three or four dozen calls, I ended up with three brokers that were willing to take a little bit of time for me. And it turns out that when I, when I was meeting with one of the brokers, um, they said, hey, so you're looking at this size deal, this area. Well, we just we just had a property owner say he wanted to sell a property that meets your criteria. It's a couple miles from here. Do you want to go see it? And didn't know it at the time, but that was our first deal. You know, I went and I saw it and, um, you know, I was I was more interested in another deal this this uh, these guys had. But, you know, long story short, the owner had, I don't know the, the whole story between the broker and the owner, but the broker had told me that the owner was having second thoughts on selling. And so they didn't market it to anybody else. They never came up with an OM. It was just, you know, I knew this property, you know, I'd walked the property. And so a month later I said, Hey, is that still available? And the broker said, probably put in an LOI and we'll see. I'm like, we can do that. They're like, yeah, put an LOI in front of the owner. And you know, if he wants to sell, he'll sign it. I'm like, all right. And so that's what we did and, and we got it. But, you know, back, backing up as far as partnerships, you know, I was I was involved in several different networking groups. I mean, you, you saw me at the, a lot of the multifamily meetups in the D.C. area. I was going to, you know, one up towards Baltimore, one in College Park, you know, one in, 
you know, Ashburn, Virginia, one in downtown DC. You know, I was going to all of these different meetups, engaged in a lot of different social media groups that were all, you know, multifamily investors. But uh, eventually I found somebody that, you know, we we didn't agree at the beginning. We we're all like, hey, let's go build a company and, you know, buy $50 million worth of assets. Um, I don't think it works that way very often. But at the end of the day, we had agreed to collaborate. We had agreed to review each other's underwriting. It's like, hey, when I underwrite a property, can I send it to you and you double check it? We went back and forth with like that for a little bit. And then we decided to start collaborating on individual properties. Like, hey, this one is, you know, within your buy criteria and it's within my buy criteria. Why don't we put a joint LOI in? And that's really, that's how the partnership started. And it got... And so when when this this property that I was speaking of when when I put the LOI in on that one it was in collaboration with you know one other guy at the time you know I was mainly working with uh, a guy named Eric and you know I sent him the property he'd look it over we both looked it over we we're both happy we put the LOI in and um, when it was signed it was I, I'll tell you I'll tell you what it's it's kind of weird because in a way everybody's really anticipating that first property and they're anticipating but. Part of me was like, you know, I hope I get this, but I'll be honest. There was a part of me that was also saying, man, I hope they say no, because, <laughs> you know, that could be, that could be a big problem. It's going to be a lot of work, you know, but uh, anyway, we, we got it. We ended up closing, brought, brought a couple more people into the deal. And, you know, from that group, we ended up forming Four Oaks Capital. And uh, I actually, about four months ago, I left Four Oaks Capital. So two of the founding members, you know, me and one other guy decided we were going to leave. The other guy decided first and I basically followed him. But so I was with Four Oaks for about three years. You know, we closed on nine properties together. Um, I've done one outside of Four Oaks and hopefully, you know, a couple more on the horizon. If you're interested in passively investing in high quality real estate opportunities, then join our investor group at Merlin, M-E-R-L-Y-N-N, acquisitions.com slash invest for direct access to carefully vetted real estate opportunities. Or head over to the show notes and click the link to join. Now let's get back to the show. You know, from just watching your journey throughout the, the multifamily space, you know, I've seen you take a lot of action to get to where you are today. We were in the, the same, you know, mastermind, so to speak, right? Uh, the Michael Blanks, you know, mastermind. And, um, you know, I saw you just post a lot of just, you know, whether it's questions, responses, like you were everywhere. And I think success happens when you just take action, you know, and it's for some reason, the, the way that the universe works is that results just follow, you know, just get up, take action. But I think you would probably attest to to this in, in, in a sense of, you know, your success definitely was tied to, to some degree in your ability to create successful partnerships, right? Would you agree with that with respect to the Forex capital and, and, you know, how that, you know, helped you to propel to where you are today? You know, speaking of that Slack channel, that's where I met my partnership. And how that started for me is I, I got into that Slack channel and it wasn't quite what was advertised. You know, it wasn't a hundred percent what, uh, I thought it should be. And, you know, I, I kind of had a couple of thoughts. I'm like, okay, I should I just abandon this. I'm like, well, I'm paying for it. I might as well try to make these, you know, good use out of it. But I, I started seeing a couple of very, very basic questions that I knew how to answer. And I'm like, oh, I can answer that question. But what I started doing is I, I had the realization one day, and it was probably on the Metro ride home from the Pentagon that you know, if, if somebody's three or four weeks ahead of me or three or four months ahead of me in their progress, and they're asking a question on this forum, it's probably a question I'm going to have in three or four months. And so what I started doing is when somebody would post a question, I would research the answer. You know, I, I had access to a couple of different online courses and podcasts and everything else. And I would research the answer. I'd find the answer. And I would say, hey, on podcast episodes, such and such for, for whoever, you know, they give this as the answer. And so that's really what that started out as. And I, I started gaining a reputation where people would tag me and say, hey, Brian, do you know the answer to this? You know, and that 
that's really what led to the partnerships more than anything else was putting myself out there, being visible and providing value. You know, people inside that group saw that I was providing value. And when it came time for me to, Hey, I need to find partners. There were a lot of potential partners there because I had been adding that value, but it really started just kind of with a one question that I knew I could answer. And then a realization that, I'm going to have to figure this out anyway. I might as well just look up the answer. I'll post it in there. And I started gaining a lot of traction. And I, I took that same traction and you know moved it over to LinkedIn too. And that's, that's basically what uh, what I've been doing there. That's great. I think you know the, the, the way that you've been able to, again, just take action and turn that into results is just something that's phenomenal. And people, you know, sometimes just, just sit around and think, hey, you know, results are just going to come, right? But positioning yourself as an authority and then also taking action, um, what a great way to help you, you know, get those those partners or just get that traction in your business. I want to pivot to multifamily operations, right? Because you've you have an extensive amount of experience with your track record in the real estate space and uh, specifically multifamily, and I know that in this space people don't usually talk about the operations in real estate, uh, specifically multifamily, right? There's a lot of content out there about acquisitions, how to raise capital, how to close a deal, but the real work starts <laughs> after you close the deal. Why do you think that is? Like, Why is multifamily operations overlooked in this industry? I, I think it's very sequential. Number one, you know, it's one of those where there, there's a lot of money People will pay money to learn how to get their first deal. And when you look at, you know, the first deal is a big filter. Um, I, I was talking to somebody from one of the, the large coaching programs in the nation, and they said they had about a 15% success rate. People who were putting $30,000 down, $40,000 down to pay for a mentor, they were having about a 15% success rate on those people actually closing on a deal, right? So it's it's a big money thing to talk about getting your first deal because a lot of people are willing to pay for that. People who are trying to get their first deal are not willing to pay for a class on multifamily operations because the deal's gotta come first. The other thing I've noticed is, you know, a lot of people like to keep operations hush-hush, you know, and. I think we've we've been very fortunate in the last you know probably decade that the the real estate market has just gone up and up and up and so you know you don't you haven't had to be a really great operator to make a ton of money you know you had to buy is what it was and I think anything you bought in 2018 you could have sold in 2021 and made like a 50 percent IRR right it doesn't matter so. Part of it, I think, is just, you know, some people just don't want to don't want people to know about their operations. You know, it's like, yeah, you know, we're struggling. I mean, I've I have a podcast as well. We, we've done 300 episodes. And um, what a lot of people will will say when we're not recording is a lot different than what they say when we are recording. It's like, yeah, we've struggled with this property. We've had a hard time with that property. And man, the management over here is a headache. And. I mean, you get a couple of property owners into a into a room, you know, around a dinner table or, you know, with drinks in hand, and you hear a lot of those horror stories. And I think a lot of it is just image. You know, you don't want to be portrayed as a poor operator, but, you know, it's not talked about a lot in the educational space because people don't pay for it. That makes total sense. I think, you know, asset management is one of the, if not most important aspects of being successful in, in this space, right? Because- after you close, there's a ton of work from a value add perspective. I mean, you have dealing with contractors, renovating. Someone has to, you know, monitor your performa, make sure that the the financials are in line with where you want it to be. You know, someone's got to manage the property manager. You know, someone has to do the blocking and tackling on a on a daily basis within the asset management space. And it, and quite frankly, it's not you know sexy to talk about, right? It's cooler to talk about, hey, we just closed this, you know, $100 million deal or this $20 million deal. Look at me. Uh, it's, it's, like, operational. it's like the offensive lineman, you know, nobody knows who the offensive lineman is, right? But, uh, you know, running backs and quarterbacks and the guys who are getting the sacks and the tackles and interceptions, you know, all those guys, but 
Yeah, it's, it's like the offensive lineman. It's it's a very important part, but you know, it's it's one that nobody. It's not sexy. You know, you're not putting up big stats. So yeah, I think that's what it's like. No, absolutely. That's a great analogy. And so, you know, what were some of the lessons that you've learned that, you know, may have helped you be a stronger operator? Part of it is you you have to know what your property manager's capabilities are, right? And that's some some property managers are really good at certain things. Some property managers are really good at other things. Um, the first property management shop, and we've probably gone, we've cycled through property managers more than Wow, it's, it's been a lot. Let's put it that way. But our first property manager was really good at renovations. You know, they were, they they had their in-house construction teams, and they did an amazing job getting units churned quickly. They weren't great at leasing, you know. And the the owner of this property management company was a general contractor. He went from a fix and flipper to a property manager, and so they were really good at that. And we went to went away from them to a different company. Um, because we wanted somebody who was better with the leasing and the financial reporting piece. And they were terrible at the construction part, at managing the construction and everything else. So I, I think it's really just a matter of you have to know what your property manager strength and weaknesses are. Um, I'm convinced that there's no property manager out there that's strong across the board, but know what their strengths and weaknesses are and then be able to compensate for what their strengths and weaknesses are. So if if you want the, if if your business plan include you know turning ten units a month because you've got a two hundred unit property that you want to get renovated in a two year period, and your property management company can't handle ten units per month, you know you've got to jump in and fill in that gap. Let your property manager do what they're good at, and then figure out okay maybe we'll hire a construction manager or maybe hey somebody in the GP can manage the the construction management part where they. They're finding the crews and they're just, you know, liaising with the, the property management company to make sure these crews have access. So I think that's one of the biggest keys with management. You know, the property manager is going to be where the rubber meets the road, but they're not going to be good at everything. You got to know what they're good at and be able to fill in the blanks they're at, you know, where wherever wherever they're not. That's a hundred percent true. And that's that's that is something that I've been able to learn prior to getting into to you know multifamily syndications from the asset management space right i've seen you know private equity firms they tend to have at least one component of the you know the system so to speak in house whether it's a property management company a leasing team or construction because all of those three phases have a direct impact on you being able to execute the business plan and property management is is a very important part of that. I think that, you know, once you're able to have at least one of those components in-house, that's a great way to control your destiny within this space, right? And then also just evaluating people, but go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say at some point we were doing, you know, different property and different management teams. At some point we were doing all of it. I mean, doing, you know, listing the property on, you know, Facebook market. And it's probably a ton of work. Yeah, it, it is. It's, it's not the type of work you expected. I mean, I think a lot of people expect, you know, we'll buy the property, we'll hand the keys over to the property manager and, you know, magic happens, right? But it's not magical. <laughs> Absolutely not. It's uh, asset management is, is a lot of work. So I know that you've recently shifted, right? You went off and you formed Streamline Capital Group. And there's a large focus on capital raising. And you have been one of the more successful people, I think, about leveraging LinkedIn and just building a community. Uh, can you talk more about, you know, your capital raising strategy and, you know, how that has been able to, you know, help you grow to the 50 million as well, where you are today? You know, uh, there, there's been a lot of consistent posting. And I think, you know, my my strategy has been more of an educational type thing. You know, I, I try to, to kind of push the envelope. Like yesterday, you know, a lot of people talk about conservative underwriting. And I just went on a rant why, you know, nobody writes conservatively, you know, but uh, underwrites conservative. But, you know, I, I try to kind of be a, a truth teller. But a lot of times I'll take economic data, you know, when inflation reports come out or jobless reports comes out or or whatever, you know, I try to basically say this is how this is going to affect multifamily. And I put a lot of educational type stuff out there. And correspondingly, you know, sometimes people will look at my posts and follow me and it'll be like three months where they're, you know, 
liking my post, you know, once or twice a week. And eventually they'll reach out to me and say, hey, I'm looking at investing. Do you have any opportunities? So really, I think what, what I try to do is become attractive, you know, and make make me make my my LinkedIn feed the source for a lot of people who are looking for more information. And when they're ready, if, if I'm where they go to to learn more about the industry, then they're going to invest with me as well. And that's. It's actually been the LinkedIn's been phenomenally successful at finding people who want to invest. Again, you have been probably one of the more consistent on LinkedIn. That alone, the consistency behind posting on social media, being that go-to person for educational resources, being a thought leader, people will gravitate to that because they know what to expect. Yeah, I mean that that is essentially what I'm trying to do is put it put it into terms people cuz I mean most people don't get past the headlines you know, on on you know whatever whatever they're listening to they don't they don't get past the headlines and th- there's a lot of fear there's a lot of uncertainty in the market you know inflation and recession and inverted yield curve and you know rising interest rates and whatnot you know those those have been kind of the buzzwords in the last 6 months but you know, so a lot of my posts go around, I, I read the Wall Street Journal and I kind of pay attention to what people are saying on LinkedIn and Twitter. That really kind of guides me, hey, what's what are what's the buzz right now? What are people worried about? And you know, if people today are worried about rising interest rates, I tell them, you know, I put things in perspective and I try to figure out a way to explain it to somebody like, hey, it's still a good time to invest in real estate, even with the rising real interest rates. Here's why. You know, so try to try to kind of take what what the buzz is and what kind of the the things people are fearing with the news and the economy and trying to turn that around, educate people. Hey, it's not that bad. You know, yeah. okay, interest rates right now. Yeah. The federal funds rate is about two, seven, five. Guess what? That's where we were three years ago. You know, it's not new. So that's kind of the the approach I take is a lot of. education and a lot of just taking current events and you know putting a positive spin on it yeah what a great way to to stay relevant too when we live in a space where everyone is trying to grab attention and there's a you know other there are other publications out there that some of your uh, investors or people who are interested in you who follow you can follow but being that point of contact is something that I think is great tell me a time where you felt stuck and frustrated in this journey, right? I like to say that real estate is a marathon, not a sprint. And so tell me a time, maybe the listeners today can, you know, uh, maybe are going through some things and, you know, some of the same struggles that you might have dealt with in the past, but tell me a time where you were able to break through a specific moment and how you overcame that to get to where you are today. We already, we already talked about the the ship time. Um, that was difficult for me because, I guess in my mind, I had kind of tied everything with Four Oaks. Like, okay, you know, when I when I was looking at retiring and getting out, I'm like, well, Four Oaks is there. I got my partnership already set. You know, it's we've got properties, we got a track record, we got some history going on. But internally, things weren't going great. We weren't talking as much as we should. We really stovepiped in our responsibilities um, for one reason or another. Our acquisitions kind of, you know, went down the toilet. We just we, we went on a long stretch without any acquisitions when I felt that we should have been buying just about every property around. So, you know, I was going through that hard time. And then one of my partners called me. I was at the gym in the morning, you know, 730 in the morning and my partner's calling me. I'm like, if he's calling me this early, I better answer, right? You know, so, and he mentioned he was, hey, you know, I, I, I need to leave the company, gave all of his reasons. And for the next couple of months, I really had a lot of, you know, mental and emotional anguish. It's like, okay, what's, you know, is this the end of Four Oaks? Is this, you know, we, we had a partnership and now he's leaving. And now, so there, there was a whole lot of uncertainty going forward. And, I didn't really know what to do. And it took me several months of, you know, kind of dealing with this of, you know, okay, what's next for us? Well, this is this, I, I pinned all my hopes on four Oaks and I just retired. And, you know, three weeks later, he tells me he's leaving the company. And so for me, there was just a lot of, like I said, mental and emotional, you know, kind of a storm brewing on the inside. Um, I, I probably, you know, my, my wife will probably tell you that I kind of, 
wasn't very happy. You know, I was just kind of uh, numb to a lot of things. But really what it took is, you know, I think Jocko Willing talks a lot about you're not always motivated. You can be disciplined. You know, you need to be disciplined and kept on going through the motions and kept on talking to people about everything. And, you know, very slowly started realizing I had everything I needed to still be successful. You know, I can change partners. I can find new partners. I have a whole bunch of people to choose from, from, you know, my, my LinkedIn network, from the tribe of Titans, from everything else, from the podcast. And yeah, really getting through that was, it took a while, but it was just a, a matter of sitting down, assessing what I had and realizing that, you know, my future was never tied to Four Oaks. My future is 100% tied to me. And it just took a really good friend, you know, sitting down with her and talking about it to, you know, get me through that and make me realize, yeah, I do have a lot going for me. And, you know, anyway, that that was really it. And there, there was probably a two, two or three month period from, I don't know, December to February, you know, maybe a little longer where I was pretty much down in the doldrums all the time, but that, that was it. I think it was just a matter of maintaining discipline, keep on doing what I was doing, keep on getting on the investor calls, keep on posting on LinkedIn. And you could probably go back to posts from that time frame, and there's probably, you'll notice a little edge to a lot of the posts, you know, because that's, that's the mindset I was in, but edgy actually works very well. <laughs> it turns out. That's great. That's great. I think one of the things I always like to say is that, you know, Life, there's always a time in life where you're going to have to pivot and make those changes, right? And and there's sometimes things change around you that you can't control. But what you can control is your reaction to what happened to the situation, you know? And then I also like to say that, you know, when, when, when your back is up against the wall, when you have to make changes and, you know, when things happen in life, you don't rise to the occasion, you you rise to the level of your training, similar to your military background, right? And you knew that it's all on me. I have the discipline. I have the experience. You know, my success, my family's legacy is not tied to where I am today. And so, you know, kudos to you for being able to realize that. And, and because sometimes we all go through it, right? We all have certain situations where it's easy to put your head down and 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 say, oh, why me? And get in the pouty situation. <laughs> but the ones who are able to pivot quickly and recognize that, I think, are the ones who are able to be successful. It's all about pivoting fairly quickly. If you were to start this entire marathon over again, what would you do differently? You know, I, if anything, I would have tried to move faster. I would have stretched a little more and tried to, yeah, tried tried to do things faster. I mean. With the way the economy and real estate has performed in 2020 and 2021, you know, there are a couple of assets that we got outbid on, you know, because we were trying to, you know, negotiate the best price ever or trying to get really, really good pricing. Um, I, I wish I would have just stretched a little more and been a little more, a little less conservative with our underwriting, so to speak, you know, because, you know, we, there are a couple of deals that we knew were good deals and we came in with a low ball offer and somebody else got the deal. So, I think really what I would have done is just been a little more realistic and, you know, instead of trying to lowball people, give people a good price. You know, it's like, you know what, if, if we're offering them 4.1, so we eventually get the property at 4.5, why don't we just start at four five and just, you know, stick firm. But uh, anyway, I think, I think we would have stretched to make, to buy more and to do more. That makes total sense. I think, you know, because everyone is looking at the same deal and, you know, for us, you know, the way that we've been able to win deals is just, through our operational expertise, right? And finding ways to cut costs here and there, but still make the deal pencil in a way that we're not being too aggressive. So I think this whole context of conservative underwriting, I think it has some validity to it. And I think you still need to have, you know, be surrounded with the fundamentals of just base level underwriting. But I think with the tailwinds that we have behind us in this space, to say that you're going to win a deal with just 100% conservative underwriting, I think that's the setup for failure. Absolutely is. Absolutely is. So yeah, I think just being a little more realistic on underwriting and not trying to be too conservative, but you know, you win, you, you win some, you lose some, and you learn from everyone. Yeah. So Last question. What's your, what would you consider to be your secret sauce today for success? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I've been very successful. I, I think really it is, is just add value. I mean, people have, 
people have told me recently in the last week that I, I attract people because I try to help people, you know, so if people come to me and, Hey, I'm, I'm trying to get into syndication. Can you give me some tips? I'm like, yeah, sure. Tell me what you're doing. And I, I do my best to help people. And uh, that that's worked for raising capital as well. When people come to me with, Hey, I've got, I've got this much money. I want to invest it. Can you help me figure out the best, best thing for me? You know, I'm not an investment advisor, but I'll tell, I'll tell them what I'll, what I do. But I think the the super the thing is is I, I try to care about the people and I try to help them and that tends to resonate with a lot of people. Really cool. I think adding value is a great way to propel yourself forward in business. Talk about the tribe of titans and your multifamily um, educational group and just you know the goals for Streamline Capital Group and if anyone is interested in investing, you know, you know how to find you. So the tribe of Titans is, is my way to help, you know, people who want to syndicate. And after taking, you know, dozens and dozens of calls from people who asked me for advice, I started writing my answers down. You know, instead of giving answers on the fly, you know, if somebody would ask me a question about one particular subject, I would, you know, it was usually on the metro going home from the Pentagon. I'd okay, somebody asked me about this last night. I don't have anything burning right now. I would just type something up and um, that really ended up being, you know, the tribe of Titans is my way of helping more and more people at once. So a lot of those lessons learned, you know, I have basically written up and dropped into the tribe of Titans and there's, there's, you know, 200 or so people in there right now. It's, it's a subscription based, you know, 40 bucks a month, not too crazy, but the, the idea is I want to be able to help as many people as possible get to their first deal. And we are going to come up with an operations course in there as well. Just uh, there, there's not a lot of demand for it up front. And then the Streamline Capital, that's the new investment firm. Uh, just started a fund. If, if anybody's interested in investing, I always have you know, opportunities for accredited and non-accredited investors. So I can, I can put people into 506B or 506C deals, um, but just reach out and, and let me let me know. Uh, website for the Streamline Capital Fund is streamlinecapitalgroup.com and you Tribe of Titans, the Tribe of Titans.info. And that's the best place to find out about it. Good stuff. Good stuff. So, Brian, I really appreciate you being on the show today. I know we talked about a whole lot between doing your first deal, raising capital, being able to, to find partnerships. You know, we talked a little bit about that breakthrough moment. Um, so really appreciate you being on the show today. And thank you so much for the listeners today for tuning in to our episode of the Mogul Marathon Real Estate Podcast. And let's take action today and be great. And remember that real estate is a marathon and not a sprint. So thanks so much, Brian. Hey, thank you. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.